You are listening to the Vine Church Sermon Podcast. Thanks for joining us. For more information about the Vine Church, please visit our website at www.thevinemadison.org. Then there was a period of a few months where I really got into this particular podcast called Crime Junkie. Any fans? Crime Junkie? Okay, don't be, don't be ashamed. It's a great podcast. And two ladies, Britt and Ashley, are fantastic storytellers. And they diagnose real crime, like shedding light on what may or may not have happened. And I realized that that's probably not the right podcast for me to tune into as I'm drifting off to sleep, like dwelling on terrible crimes that are happening. So I stopped that habit. I've moved on. But as one who listened to many episodes of Crime Junkie, what I heard these two ladies say often is you just never know who someone truly is. You just never know who someone truly is. And this speaks to trust, our trust of others. And as we think about trust, you know, what, what does it take for you to trust someone? You know, as simple as watching your, you know, your pet or your, your dog or your cat, your pet over the weekend, a neighbor. What does it do to, for you to trust your neighbor to do that? Or trusting a friend to babysit your child for the night so that you can go out. Or trusting an investor with your money. What does it take for you to trust someone? Well, as we continue watching Jesus move towards this cross, Matthew really helps us move with Jesus, in a way in which we can trust who he has said he is throughout the narrative. That Jesus, this, this man of sorrows, this, the very son of God, is worthy to be trusted. And, and last week, we, we learned how the Jewish leaders did, did really everything within their power to have Jesus condemned to death. Yet, What Houston brought out so clearly, which I think is so important for us, is that Matthew doesn't just want us to see Jesus condemned. Matthew wants us to understand Jesus exchanged his legal standing as an innocent man with that of a guilty man, Barabbas. And Houston said this, he said, when Jesus was sent to be crucified, Jesus doesn't carry a cross made for him, he carries a cross made for Barabbas. And he does the same for you and I as well. And in Jesus' most extraordinary action of taking our punishment on himself is this sobering reality of what now Jesus must endure. From, From the moment Pilate condemns Jesus to the moment that Jesus dies on the cross, there's this incredible, absolute horror that Jesus endures. And we find that in our narrative, how Jesus continually chooses to endure this horror, willingly enduring for our sake so that we might see Jesus as worthy to be trusted, so that we might see Jesus as worthy to be trusted. Let's pray. Jesus, we ask Lord, that you would, by your spirit and by the power of your word, open our hearts to your word. 
and your words to our hearts. We need you in these moments to see you for who you are, not how we think you are or not how we want you to be. But Lord, would you reveal yourself through our time together? In your name we pray, amen. And like I said, this is a sobering message. We're gonna see two horrors that Jesus experiences. One, the physical horror of the cross, and secondly, the emotional horror of the cross. So physical horror and emotional horror. And as we get started, as we begin thinking about the physical horror that Jesus endured, we, we know earlier in Matthew that um, Jesus has already suffered, actually earlier this evening, he's already suffered much physically, right? He's been spat upon, he's been beaten uh, while in the hands of the Jewish leaders, right? We saw that in weeks past. So in our narrative today, Jesus now stands not in the hands of the Jewish leaders, but of the Romans. And that's a whole new ballgame. For the Romans possess full authority and power to do whatever it is that they want to do. And Roman soldiers, in particular, are well-trained professionals in torture. And the, and the first thing that they do, as we, as we look at verse 26, you can look with me, the first thing they do is that they, they, scourge, or they scourge Jesus, or they flog Jesus. And flogging or scourging is absolutely horrific. It's the Roman way to inflict maximum amount of pain onto the human body. And being scourged, Jesus, in this moment, he would have been stripped naked. His, his hands would be tied to a large wooden post. His legs would be outstretched and, and tied down so that his body is completely taut, unmovable, fully exposed. And then two soldiers, one on either side, would begin to whip begin to pulverize the body of Jesus. The body that's been outstretched, naked, defenseless. And they would whip using a leather whip that's interwoven with large, jagged, hard pieces of bone, rock, or metal. And as these Roman soldiers flog the body of Jesus with this nasty leather whip, as they, as they come down, they finish each swing by giving a swift tug upward. You can think of fishing, right? You give that tug. And they tug because it allows these jagged pieces of bone or rock or metal to strip away the flesh of the human body. And you can imagine that these whippings would at times lead to immediate death of the prisoner just bleeding out on the spot having their skin opened up as such. It's a horrific scene. It's horrific. But then we read in verse 27, that after this happens, it says, Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And scholars tell us that a battalion would be in the neighborhood of 600 soldiers. 600. Can you imagine this? Jesus already endured this scourging. His flesh opened up, blood everywhere, bones and organs probably made visible, agony in every nerve, quivering pain in every muscle. Jesus now enters this place by himself, alone, with 600 Roman, torturous-minded warriors. One versus 600. The Romans don't like the Jews, do they? They hate them. 
And there's no accountability. And so with much glee, I would imagine, these Roman soldiers begin to envision what they might do to Jesus in this moment. And so really, like a pack of wild animals, we can think along those lines. In verse 28, the soldiers, they strip Jesus and put a scarlet robe on him. And they twist together a crown of thorns and they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand and kneeling before him, they mock him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Really, this is a a picture, a scene of a Roman mob of soldiers like rolling on the floor in laughter, poking fun, mocking Jesus for who he said he's been. And you can kind of imagine where one soldier gets an idea to mock or make fun of Jesus, and then it just kind of continues and spirals, right? Maybe you've been in that situation where someone has an idea, and they're like, that's a great idea, and what if we do this too? So someone comes with this idea, let's take his clothes off, and let's put on this scarlet robe that represents power and and majesty. Then another says, well, let's twist together this crown of thorns and shove it on his head, a crown of thorns, Shove it on his head like a crown, like a king would wear. And then another might say, well, let's take a reed and, and put it in his hand like a scepter, like a king would hold. It's just one big joke to the Romans. And they kneel before Jesus, mocking, saying, hail, king of the Jews. Yet as they set out for Golgotha, in verse 32, the horror of the cross is just getting started. Typically, you would see condemned criminals carry the beam of their cross to the site of their execution. But evidently, as we look here in verse 32, Jesus must be too weakened by his beating to carry the cross. So the Romans find a guy named Simon and have him carry the cross of Jesus. And as we see here in verse 35, they come out to a place called Golgotha, and Matthew says they crucify him. And Matthew really tells us nothing of the crucifixion, does he? Just that it happened. Yet we know that crucifixion was designed by the Romans really to keep victims alive in as much pain as possible for as long as possible before death would come. And it was this harsh brutality of the cross which served as a warning, served as a symbol to the world of the total supremacy of the Roman government. And when you were crucified, the victim would be, again, stripped naked. Their feet would be pulled down, and a large iron um, rod or a, um, a nail would be driven into the arches of their feet to keep their ankles together. Their hands would be extended outward, and nails be driven through the wrists right here, not so that the nail wouldn't pull away from the fingers, but so it would catch bone. And once the victim was literally nailed into place, the cross would be raised and dropped into a hole. And slowly the victim would succumb to suffocation, too weakened to lift their head far enough for air. And we can think about this in the the ways in which perhaps you go to the park and you hang on a monkey bar, or you go to the gym and work out. And I don't know about you, but for me, I can only hang on that monkey bar for, you know, 20 seconds before my arm gets real tired. My arms become heavy and I let go. 
But in crucifixion, your entire body weight is supported by these nails. Nails which have been driven into your bones and nerves. And so most naturally, as you're hanging there, if you're being crucified, you're gonna, your body's going to begin to slump, to sag under the weight of your body. And as your body sags, as your hands remain outstretched, fashioned, fastened firmly, the oxygen in your lungs is becoming depleted. And you're facing the prospect of suffocation. So the only way that you can find oxygen is actually by pushing up with your legs. Legs which have been nailed into place. But as you struggle to push up with your legs, it will provide right, a momentary reprieve. But every time you push up with your legs, it causes on the opposite side of things for you to actually slump or to sag even more. A little bit lower a little bit lower, and again and again, this inability to find oxygen. One doctor concerning the crucifixion says this, with arms fatigued, with, so- with shoulders and elbows popped out of joint, with waves of cramps sweeping over the muscles, with deep, relentless, throbbing pain comes the inability to push upward. Hanging only by your arms, the pectoral muscles become paralyzed. Air can be drawn into the lungs, but can't be exhaled. And finally, carbon dioxide builds up in the lungs and in the blood, and slowly one is led into death. Friends, crucifixion could last for days. Slow, very painful. Most people say it remains one of the most gruesome forms of execution humans have ever invented. And as Jesus hung on that cross, naked, his body bloodied, disfigured from his beating, slowly inching towards death, as absolutely horrifying as all those physical things are, actually next week as we continue looking at this is the complete horror of the cross as God forsakes him. Unbelievably, the worst has yet to come. But as we see Jesus on the cross, enduring the absolute most brutal way one might possibly physically suffer in our world, perhaps we're thinking, well, why did Jesus have to go to the cross? Why did Jesus have to endure such a most terrific way of death? Jesus could have died in many other ways, by sword, quick, right? Why the cross? Why did he have to die in a brutal cross in the most horrific way known to humanity? Well, church, I think it's because the absolute horror of the cross reveals the absolute horror of your sin. That the absolute horror of the cross reveals the absolute horror of our sin. For we most naturally never think of our sin as that bad, do we? But the horrific scene of this cross reveals the horrific nature of what our sin most truly is. And that should be sobering. That should be sobering. That our sin deserves the sentencing of death, death on a cross. And yet Jesus took that death sentence, didn't he? He took it for Barabbas He takes our death sentence and goes to our cross to die the death that we should have died. 
And what I find most shocking throughout this narrative as we move through it is that Jesus goes through with it. For Jesus says in many places, but in John 10, he says, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down. I lay my life down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. And so at every turn of the narrative, I just want to scream, Jesus, do something. You have authority. Use it. As Pilate slams like the gavel down, condemning Jesus to death, and as Jesus allows these Roman soldiers to tie him to the post and begin to pulverize his body, I'm screaming, Jesus, just send down your angels and stop this. As Jesus enters this place with 600 Roman torturous soldiers before him, gleefully mocking him as king, stripping him of his clothes, spitting on him, beating him again and again over his head, I'm like, Jesus, just send down your lightning and end this. As Jesus stumbles out of the city to Golgotha, as they begin to drive the nails into his head or his hands and his feet, as they hoist up the cross, I'm screaming louder than any of the religious leaders there saying, Jesus, you're God. Get yourself off the cross. Free yourself. But that's where it hits me. If Jesus does not go through with it, I'd be on the cross. If Jesus comes down, it's me being executed for my sins. One pastor says it so well. Ultimately, God removes evil from the universe by absorbing it into himself. Our sin must be dealt with. God doesn't excuse evil. He doesn't like close one eye and look the other way. Sin must be dealt with, must be paid for. Because of my horrific sin, Jesus died a horrific death. It should have been me. But it was Jesus. As been said so often, nails did not keep Jesus bound to the cross. Love did. Love bound Jesus to the cross. For Jesus knew full well what all would happen to him as the gavel came down, releasing Barabbas. And yet he endured it for our sake. In Paul's classic contemplation of sin and grace in Romans chapters 5 through 8, which might be fantastic devotional reading for us this week in light of this message, Paul says, famously, he says, what, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? He says, no, by no means, right? And then in response to the sobering reality of Christ's death on the cross for the sinner, Paul commands the church saying this, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been, bought, who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Brothers and sisters, may we wake up to this truth. 
But the absolute horror of the cross reveals the absolute horror of our sins. And where we allow unrepentant sin in our lives to dwell, it's like we become these Roman soldiers, these religious leaders who spit on the face of Jesus as he goes to the cross, mocking him as someone who is not who he says he is. But I believe Scripture reveals he is who he says he is. And therefore, where there is sin in our lives, we repent. For Jesus died for that very reason. We live under grace. We live under grace, not law. He endured this absolute horror so that we do not. So that we do not. Well, not only did Jesus endure the physical pain that came with the cross, Jesus also faced the horror of emotional pain, the shame of the cross, the insult of the cross. As we may know, crucifixion was really reserved for the lowest of people in society. One theologian wrote this. He said, the cross of Jesus was bound to strike an educated Greek as a barbaric folly. A Roman citizen as sheer disgrace, and a devout Jew as God's curse. You see, crucifixion at this time was the most shameful way to be put to death. And you can think about it, right? You're nailed to a cross on a well-traveled road, visible to all, naked, fully exposed, no defense, not even against like a bird or an insect flying around. And you slowly, very publicly are dying. How profoundly shameful and horrifically insulting to the dignity of human life. And for this reason, the Jews believed that the cross was the sure sign of God's curse on the condemned. Yet, not only does Jesus like associate himself with this horrific insult of the cross, he also endures the insult of others while on the cross. In verse 36, as Jesus is on the cross... The Roman soldiers, in verse 36, they sit down and keep watch over him there. And over Jesus' head, they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were, with, or crucified, excuse me, were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. You know, friends, this is unimaginable verbal abuse and assaults as jesus hung there on the cross fully exposed gasping for air fighting to stay alive he's also terribly alone everyone has deserted him his buddies the disciples men who said they'd never leave him have left horrific pain naked alone in a 
approaching death, we see the only ones who come near to Jesus in this time of need are the ones who come to hurl insult. And what are they mocking? What are they challenging Jesus to do? We see it there in verse 40, that if you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. Meaning, if you really are who you say you are, then, then save yourself. The passerbyers say it. The religious leaders say it. The Roman soldiers say it. And even these two dying criminals somehow find enough oxygen in their depleting lungs to join this chorus of, of insults. Physical pain hurts, but sometimes verbal assaults hurt even more, don't they? And Jesus suffered both. And certainly Jesus, as the God-man, could have very easily come off the cross in this moment. I think Satan wanted him to. I think he wanted him to desperately. And Jesus had all authority, right, to call on his angels, to come to his dispense. Or he could have, like, in dramatic Hollywood fashion, you know, like, reversed the nails that are in his hands and feet and just, like, shot them into the eyes of the Roman soldiers or the chief priests. And then, like, soared majestically into the air, like, triumph over evil with great music, right? Could have done that. But none of that happens. Instead, Jesus chose to stay on the cross enduring this horrific insult of the cross because Jesus has a different aim. He's come to fulfill the mission of God, saying as much so often in Scripture, saying the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And in order to save the lost, Jesus had to endure the physical and emotional horror of the cross. You see, what those mocking Jesus do not realize is the paradox that Jesus proves he is God by staying on the cross, not by coming down. And Jesus stayed on the cross because that's exactly what he came to do. You see, no one forced Jesus to be crucified. Jesus chose to endure it. And not because he was deserving to do so. Not because he was deserving of the cross, but because you and I were deserving of the cross. Yet in his great love, he endured the absolute horrors of the cross to save us from the horrific death we should have died. Truly, the, the awfulness of the cross becomes the awesomeness of our salvation. And it's at the cross of Jesus which proclaims to us today that he is worthy of our trust. At the cross proclaims that Jesus is worthy of our trust. What else does Jesus have to do to prove it? You know, every election cycle, there's always polls, right? We, we poll all the time to determine how candidates are faring, right? I've never gotten called for one of those. I, I really want, I want to. But we poll to, to find how candidates are, you know, how do we like their, you know, their platform, or how do we like their ideologies, or my favorite is uh, how, do we, how do we find their character? How do we find a candidate's character? And I always chuckle at that poll because I don't really trust any candidate's character. Why should I? I'm not trying to put any one down. No doubt there are folks serving 
who, who really want to lead in, in honoring ways. But we've seen, right, over the years and throughout history that politics is often way more about the individual politician than those that they govern. And, and really, politicians must always present themselves in a way that allows them to, 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 to hold on to their position of power and influence over others, which often then just results in corruption and scandal. Yet, yet in Jesus, the, the, the one with absolute power and authority is the Son of God. He chooses not to hold on to his power and authority, but he gives it up. And, and in great humiliation, he, he suffers the absolute horror of the cross so that you and I might know God. So, so that you and I might be exalted with him. And, and that's quite different than even the best of our politicians, isn't it? I love in Philippians 2, the classic um, verses here where Paul speaks of this very thing. Where Paul says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, what did he do? He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is a king that I can trust. What about you? What about you? If you're listening today and perhaps never placed your faith, your trust in Jesus as the Savior of your sins, the Lord of your life, I hope you know two things today. That the horror of your sin demands a horrific punishment. But that Jesus, secondly, didn't stay in the clouds, but he came to be a friend of the sinner, of, of you and I. He chose to endure this horrific punishment that your sins demanded. And I, and I want you to see, as we see in our narrative, that as Jesus hung there, dying this, this horrific death, there, there's two other criminals also dying there as well. Two criminals that we know are deserving of the cross of death for what they did. And while Matthew says both these criminals join in on the barrage of insults, we know as we go to Luke's account that evidently at some point in that hanging there on the cross, one of these criminals actually turns to Jesus in repentance and faith and finds eternal life. I want you to hear this. If you, if you don't know Jesus, hear this, that Jesus stayed on the cross not because he couldn't come down, but Jesus stayed on the cross because he wouldn't come down so that condemned criminals like those on the cross with him that day and for you and I might find eternal life. That's good news. That's the gospel. The cross proclaims King Jesus is worthy of our trust. And if you do not believe or trust Jesus for your salvation, I simply ask, what more does Jesus have to do to prove it?
for those here today who see Jesus as worthy of trust, who have found Jesus as the Savior of your sins, I wonder how much we truly trust Jesus as the Lord of our lives. I find in my heart it's, it's easier to confess I'm in need of a Savior for something over here that maybe is a little bit abstract. But it's harder for me to say I have a need for a Lord of my life. I can let Jesus do the saving. I can admit to that at times. But this living of my life, I want to figure that out on my own terms and in my own power. Yet the cross proclaims that King Jesus is worthy of our trust. And what Jesus says in his word as we read and by his spirit as he reveals himself to us, we can trust that. Even when the things that Jesus says runs countercultural to the values of the world that we live in right now. Even when the value of our culture promotes this idea of, you know, accumulate wealth, accumulate uh, prosperity, get, get these things, I, I can trust Jesus in his word. That worldly possessions are temporary and fleeting and only to be used to advance his kingdom. When, when the value of our culture prioritizes these vocational pursuits and to, to gain positions of influence and, and power, I can I can trust Jesus and his word that my identity is secure, already secured through the finished work of Jesus on the cross in the empty tomb. You see, what what Jesus says in his word and by his spirit, I can trust. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Perhaps there's an area or two or three, an area of your life Where you struggle to trust Jesus. Doubting his word. His promises. His intention. His goodness. If you find yourself there. I'm I'm there often friends. If you find yourself there. Maybe not today. But maybe in the weeks ahead. I encourage you to again. And again look to the cross. For at the cross. Jesus proves he's worthy to be trusted as the absolute Lord of our lives. And if you cannot believe that, I simply ask, what more does Jesus have to do to prove it? Jesus, man of sorrows, is our joy. Fine church, let's believe that together. Amen? Father, we thank you for this passage, although sobering and one that I know in my own heart I want to quickly flip through Lord, I thank you for the sobering it does to my own soul of recognizing the seriousness of sin and that sin carries a penalty. And while sobering, Lord, I rejoice today with my brothers and sisters that you offer us salvation from our sins. Lord, I pray that we would walk out of this mere facility today more aware of our sin more eager to repent, and more desirous to trust your word, to read your word, to walk by your spirit. Well, we thank you that we live under grace, not law. Thank you, Jesus, for your life, death, and resurrection.